So let's turn together to Genesis chapter 6. So I want to kind of draw you into my own weakness today um, and, and say that's okay. It's okay to, to be weak. It's okay to be tired. Um, I want to say something and then contradict myself. It's okay to, to sin. You should be worried that I just said that. But it's not okay that you sin. And what I mean by that, it's inevitable that you're going to sin. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, and so God is not surprised when you sin. He is not angry with you in the sense that he's going to kick you out of his family when you sin. And yet at the same time, God hates sin, even among his people. And so that's one of the reasons we come together today. We admit that we sin. We admit that we are weak. We admit that we yell at our kids, and we're unkind to our wives, and we're unfaithful, and we're prideful. But at the same time, we know that Jesus will help us. And we want to please our Father. That's why he's rescued us. So it's okay. But at the same time, there is change ahead. And the Spirit will help us today. So I ask you to engage, even if you're tired, even if you're frustrated, even if you're distracted. And may God's Spirit meet with us today and give us what we need. So we're teaching through the book of Genesis. And now we come to this very familiar passage in the book of Genesis. I would say that Most Westerners, even if they're not super familiar with the details of the Bible or even specifically of the book of Genesis, that they know there was this flood thing. It's sort of ubiquitous within our culture. A lot of churches, when you go to the churches in the nursery, there'll be like wallpaper border with Noah and like a little comical elephant kind of tilted on his back leg and, you know, so forth. And we've kind of turned the flood narrative into this cutesy little story Remember when my when my oldest son was born, somebody bought him a little Noah's Ark, and it had like lions and zebras and partridges and all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting if you think about it, the flood is not really that happy a story. Now, there's some good stuff that comes out of it, and we'll talk about that in detail over the next couple of weeks. But for the most part, the story of the flood is a story of wrath, judgment, anger and brokenness, and hopelessness. And so, though I just said to you, if you're tired today, and if you were overcome by sinfulness, God understands, it doesn't seem to be that compassionate of me than to launch into a discussion about the flood. But there's two things, two primary things, I want us to come away with as we spend our time in this section for the next couple of weeks. The first is that our God is just. Now, on the one hand, that should strike fear into our hearts. God is not our equal. We are accountable to him. He is able and powerful enough to do all that he must do. And he will do all that he must do to punish sin because he must maintain his justice or he will cease to be God. On the other hand, we can feel peace and hope because he has not left us under the condemnation of wrath. For those of us who are in Christ, the floods of God's wrath, the certain destiny of death for all of God's people will not be the final word for us. And so we will take our time through this section over the next couple of weeks to 
dig into it and to try to come away with those two primary thoughts because I think that's what Moses is trying to communicate. That the Lord God, the covenant-keeping mighty God who made all things, sustains all things, and who takes care of his people is just. And this same God is full of mercy. So we need to understand our God. We need to worship him rightly. And as we understand him, we will worship him rightly. But we also need to understand how we must approach this world. Mark was just talking about our missional engagement here in our globe. And we're trying to do that among the unreached, specifically in Dubai. I just spoke to our missionary yesterday from Kenya Kenya, we wouldn't necessarily consider an unreached place. But if you go there, even though there's gospel saturation, it's very gospel light. So we're trying to invest globally in what God has in front of us. But at the same time, the needs are massive here. How do we engage the world that's all around us? Whitney and I were running yesterday through the neighborhoods near us and praying for friends of ours with whom our kids go to school just praying that God would would give us those neighborhoods, that he would bring wandering, lost people to himself. And then yesterday I was helping a friend, and I came home, and on my porch, Whitney was sitting in a rocking chair, and next to her was sitting one of our friends in a rocking chair who had never been on our porch before. They live in our neighborhood, kind of in another part of the neighborhood, and she was there, and Whitney was sharing the gospel with her. And we didn't get very far. And it'll be a lot of discussions, I'm sure, that will come. But I sat there and I listened to her story. And I know know quite a bit of her story. And there's so much brokenness and pain. I want to be able to reach into the lives of my friends with whom we spend time who don't know any hope. And I want to be able to say to them, this is why things are like they are. And this is your destiny if you continue down this path. But the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and became the second Adam, one who would not fail to give you his own righteousness if you would just stop striving. And as we encounter now humanity in Genesis chapter 6, we see a humanity that is striving after their own way, seeking to establish their own path, seeking to establish their own righteousness, and it was a disaster. And that is what your world is like. But we have the answers. We can help people understand why the world is so tragically broken. Why they are often distraught, fearful, worried, anxious, hopeless. And we have the remedy as we point them to the Son of God who will take them through the floods of God's wrath and bring them to the point of their safe destination. So with that in mind, I want us to read these two chapters. This is a long endeavor, but it is my goal before we get to the end of this book that we will have read all of it aloud. There are times whenever we're going to encounter certain sections of Genesis that we just can't cover in detail every single verse because we'll be in the book for forever. But I do want to make sure that we read it all publicly. We're exhorted to do this in the scriptures, so... We're going to do that today. But I want you to keep in mind not only what I've already said, but this in particular. 
when Moses wrote this stuff down, what was it that he was trying to communicate? What was it that Israel needed to hear? You think about Israel. She had been birthed into a nation in the land of Egypt under slavery. God had taken her out of Egypt by bringing his wrath down upon the sinful Egyptians. He had taken the people of Israel through the floodwaters of the Red Sea, parting them so they could pass, and then bringing them crashing back down upon Pharaoh's army. He took them to Sinai and gave them a covenant. But under pressure, lustful pressure from the people, Aaron makes a golden calf and gives it to the people, and they're going to worship this calf God says to Moses after this incident, I'm going to blot these people out and make a nation out of you. Moses pleads with God. God relents. God preserves Israel, though judgment had to come upon them. Why did Israel need to hear about the flood? Why did Israel need to understand God's wrath? Why did Israel need to understand that God will preserve a remnant despite his wrath? Because ultimately they were the same. They had seen God rain down his just wrath upon Egypt. He had watched floodwaters come down upon his enemies. They had watched themselves, loved ones among them, be be crushed by God's wrath because they sinfully rebelled against him. And they needed to understand, why do we keep doing this? And is God just in bringing his wrath upon sinful people? And is there hope? Is there hope from a God who does such things, especially for those of us who who yet are sinful? And so with that in mind, Moses writes, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This one last week we found whose name means rest or comfort. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you 
and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its own kind, two of every sort shall come into you and to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days from now is the idea, I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons, wives with them, went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day, Of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and every winged creature." They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is God's word. So the Lord God is just, and he is merciful. The first thing that I want us to keep in mind today is what I just mentioned to you. Israel desperately needed to hear these words to understand themselves, to understand their environment, and to understand who their God was and what he would do about it. In Isaiah 43, the prophet says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. 
Judgment is reality. God is just and must punish sin. But there is differentiation between the way that God looks at sinful humanity apart from him and the way that he looks at his own people. And in that vein, Moses wrote this section on the flood. The first thing that I want us to see in this larger section today is that left to himself, mankind will spiral into unrelenting evil. Left to himself, mankind will spiral into unrelenting evil. So we see this in chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve are perfect. They have the ability not to sin, something we do not have apart from Christ. We have that when we come to Christ, but apart from Christ, we do not have the ability not to sin. Adam and Eve had the ability not to sin, but they jettisoned that, they abandoned that, and they chose to go their own way. They, they sought after the knowledge of good and evil autonomously. That seems to be the heart of the fall. They wanted to be autonomous. Satan tempted them with that. You can, you can be your own people. We have to assume that had they trusted God, he would have taught them to some degree whatever they needed to know about good and evil, but he would have done it under his own care and power. He would have put a hedge of protection around them as they learned and grew. But they didn't want that. They wanted to do it on their own. And interestingly, rather than ripping autonomy away from them, he kind of just let them have it. Now, we know from Genesis chapter 3 that he brought grace to them. He promised redemption would come. And so when the first two boys were born, when Cain and Abel were born, Eve thought maybe redemption will come through one of these two boys. God promised a seed would come who would crush the tempter, crush Satan, We know that did not happen with Cain and Abel, though, because Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. So if Adam and Eve wanted to live autonomously, Cain is a perfect example of the next step. He takes another one's life. Then as you continue down through Genesis chapter 4, you notice that Cain's line gets worse and worse and worse. But there's hope, because as we studied last week in Genesis chapter 5, God gave a replacement for Abel, a man named Seth. And Seth's line, at least the line that is recorded in Genesis chapter 5, is basically marked by righteousness. So God brings hope in the midst of the darkness. But now we come to chapter 6. And seemingly, what happens is the the good line, the righteous line of Genesis chapter 5 intermarries with the bad line of Genesis chapter 4. We don't know how long this took. We don't know how many gaps in the generations there were. But it's relatively short-ish in the grand scheme of things. But somewhere along the line, the righteous intermingle with the unrighteous, and then unrighteous offspring come, and then the righteous remnant seems to dissipate, and there's really no one left. Some people think that what's going on in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6 is that somehow angels came down and intermarried with sinful people and then like these sort of hybrid creatures came and they were like half human, half angelic. That seems very fanciful. There are good people who think that. It's probably not likely. When the sons of God are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 verse 2, it's probably talking about the righteous remnant of Genesis chapter 5. And the daughters of man are probably from the evil genealogy of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Whereas before they lived sort of separately, now they intermingle. And now the righteous get corrupted. 
We see this elsewhere in Scripture. You see this with Solomon, for instance. Solomon lusts after women. He ends up with a thousand wives and concubines. God, of course, told his people not to do that. But the problem for Solomon is not only was he polygamous, but then he went after the gods of all these wives and concubines. His heart was turned away. Solomon's story is, is mind-boggling because at the end, he is so different than the beginning. He started so well, and at the end, he seems to be such a disaster. That seems to be what happens to the righteous, hopeful line we read about last week in Genesis chapter 5. And then God's angry. One of the first things he does is he promises that he will shorten their lifespan. The long lifespans that we saw in Genesis chapter 5 were a blessing. It was God's way of saying, I will give you long life on the earth to show you that I love you and that I favor you. When that righteous remnant did evil things, God said, enough of that. Your lifespan will be very much shorter. In that verse, verse 5 in Genesis chapter 6, one of the most hopeless and dark verses in all of the Bible. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what characterized the people of the day. And then in verse 6, Moses goes on to say, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It reminds us of Exodus chapter 32 after the golden calf incident where God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe these people out. Just sort of theological, we need to deal with that for a moment. What's going on here? Because God couldn't have been surprised by this. Theologians speak of God's will in three basic categories. This is going to be a tiny bit academic, but you can jot it down and go back and study it at some point for those theological nerds who are out there today, and I know there's a few of you. Um, so one of the first things that we sometimes talk about is the, um, the moral will of God or the preceptive will of God. A precept is like a law. These are the things that God commands. God commands that we don't commit adultery. God commands that we don't murder. God commands that we don't steal. God reveals these things in his word. We know these are his commands. These are his precepts. There is another thing that we call the decorative will of God, not the D-E-C-O-R-A, not Pinterest, okay? Think of decrees, okay? Not the decorative, the decorative, the decrees of God. These are the things that he says must come to pass. So when the scriptures say that God chose those who would be in Christ before the foundation of the world, that was a decree, when God spoke the world into existence, that was a decree. Those things must come to pass. Theologians also speak of the dispositional will of God, his disposition, the way he feels about things. So the New Testament tells us that God doesn't want anybody to perish. The Bible tells us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. So which of the three is Moses talking about here? Well, God is sorry, though he's not surprised. So God decreed that the world would be made, and God decreed those who would remain to be righteous, and at the same time, he has a disposition. 
This doesn't mean that his plan was bad. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake to make the world. It just means that his disposition is he doesn't like what he sees. And sometimes God makes decrees and the fallout from people who will not follow his moral will bothers him. And that seems to be what's going on here. Dispositionally, God is upset. He's not upset that he did what he did. He's just upset at all the wickedness that he sees. And therefore, he promises judgment. But it's interesting. As you look into Exodus chapter 32, where God tells Moses, I'm going to wipe out Israel. Moses pleads on their behalf and says, God, please don't do that. Maintain your righteous faithfulness and and show mercy to these people. And then God does. You wonder perhaps if this one whose name means rest and comfort, if perhaps he did the same thing. Because this man named Noah is the only righteous one left. Perhaps Noah looked all around him. He knew intuitively that there was no one else righteous. He knew there was no one else blameless. His little family was a microcosm of God's covenant faithfulness. And perhaps when God said to him, Noah, I'm going to wipe this whole thing out, maybe Noah did plead. Maybe he pled with God that he would show mercy. And of course he did because he saved Noah's family. But Noah, like Moses, was, was distraught at the wickedness all around him and begged God for mercy. And of course, Israel needed to hear this as they looked back on the narrative of the flood. They needed to understand themselves. Why were they so bad and why did God have to punish them? And would there be hope? We'll get more to that in just a moment. But left to himself, mankind will spiral into unrelenting evil. We see this all around us. Now, this does not mean that every person will do every bad thing. Sometimes in theological circles, you hear the term total depravity. And I think sometimes that's not the best descriptor of the way man is. Because sometimes when you hear that term, you think to yourself, well, I have unsaved friends, but they don't do everything bad. They, they love their wives. They love their kids. They, they're philanthropic and so forth. So theologians have gotten to talking more about this term that we call inability or total inability. That mankind, even whenever he does good things, cannot earn favor with God. And ultimately, even the good things that he does, they're laced with sin, sinful intentions, sinful motivations. So truly, your neighbor next to you may not do all the worst things possible. That's not what we mean by total depravity, but... By perhaps using this term total inability, we mean that there's nothing that they can do to earn God's favor. And frankly, everything that they do do, even the things that seem to be relatively good, and we might even put the label of good on them, those things have no merit. Those good works have no merit. And frankly, they're probably all laced with sin in one way or another. Sometimes you'll hear people say, the world is worse than it's ever been, so Jesus can't linger any longer whatever your view on the end times are. I just want to take them back to like the very beginning of the Bible and say, just go read that, and you'll know that's not the case. Now, were things worse then than they are now? I don't know that we can say that. 
Because we see a lot of really bad stuff around us. How do you explain broken families? How do you explain infanticide that we use the term abortion to describe? How do you explain child abuse? How do you explain pride, lust, egotism? How do you explain greed? How do you explain people who are so cold that they seem to show no love? How do you explain these things? Were things worse then than they are now? Probably not. It's pretty interesting, and we'll get there next week. Right after Noah's family gets off the ark, there's sin immediately. And then you get into chapters 10 and 11, and it gets even worse. But God seems to be saying through this that mankind left to himself, living autonomously, which was the sin of Adam and Eve, eventually, when that comes into full bloom, it'll be terrible. And that's what we see in front of us. The second thing I think this text teaches us is that God, in order to maintain his righteousness, must punish sin. So left to himself, mankind will spiral into unrelenting evil, just kind of implode. But God, in order to maintain his righteousness, must punish sin. If he fails to do that, he will no longer be righteous. And so he does. And really, chapters 6 and 7 are the description of God in great detail, bringing his wrath down upon mankind. If you don't mind, turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 7. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is one of those chapters in the Bible. We've gone through it before as we taught through the book of Romans, but it's one of those chapters which... Is difficult interpretationally and perhaps even more so. It's difficult just to deal with because God speaks of both his wrath and his mercy here. So in Romans chapter 9, God is speaking of the way that he looks at humanity. Some he rescues out of his sovereign grace and some he does not. In verse 19, we get to sort of the crux of the matter. Paul says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if God is sovereign in rescuing some sinful people, can we charge him with being unjust? But notice how Paul responds. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Which brings us really to the third thing that I want us to see today from this text. I want to put points two and three sort of in tension with one another. God, in order to maintain his righteousness, must punish sin. That's why the flood came. But God, delighting to keep his promises... His promises to Adam and Eve that redemption would eventually come extends his mercy to his covenant people. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 9. God will punish sinful people. But in doing so, his grace gets highlighted. That's what the flood really proclaims to us as well. 
you have this mass of humanity around the earth that just die because of God's judgment. And yet, you have this wooden boat, and though it's a big boat, in the grand scheme of things, it's this tiny little speck in the midst of all the waters. If the ark truly landed on the mountains in Turkey that we call Ararat today, then the ark had to have been on waters that were at least 17,000 feet above sea level. Think about that. Massive amounts of, of liquid. And here's this tiny little speck of a boat. But that little speck of a boat, that little nothingness in the midst of all the wrathful judgment, there was mercy in that boat. And that seems to be what Paul's saying here as well in Romans chapter 9. So this is a biblical concept that's more to be it's found elsewhere than just in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 about the flood. Yes, God must punish sin and and. God shows forth his attributes of things like justice and wrath. But at the same time, against the backdrop of that, his grace does shine. So God delights to keep his promises. He did so by keeping his promise to rescue humanity, by preserving some righteous remnant. And so we look at Genesis chapter 6 through 9, and we, we find darkness. We find darkness in the heart of humanity. We find, we find terror in God punishing dark humanity. And yet we find hope because God preserves man alive. He promises to make a covenant with these people to show them kindness and love. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the writer says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And applicationally, we've already talked about why Israel so desperately needed this text, but let's talk about why we need it for just a moment. I said to you a bit ago that as you look at the world around you, it's pretty bad. Let's not try to rank how bad it's been in different epochs or different eras. Let's just say it's bad. You yourself, left to yourself, were bad. And yet God in his great mercy sought you by decree. He didn't just dispositionally love you and leave it up to you to come to him because you wouldn't have. Left to yourself, you would spiral into self-destruction. But he sought you, and he called you to himself, and the fact that you trusted him is a proof of that. And now, if you are God's child, you will be being transformed by degree over the course of your lifespan. You will not be the same person that you used to be. You won't be all that you want to be right away, but you will be changing There's a definite connection between calling and conduct. Noah came from the righteous line of Seth in Genesis chapter 5. And the calling was proved by his conduct. The conduct did not make him a called one. His conduct just proved that he had been called. Noah's life was marked by righteousness. This came, of course, from the mercy of God. But he obeyed. 
So as you are plucked out of the mass of humanity that is thinking evil thoughts continually, you are now different. You stand out. And as the world encounters you, a couple of things will happen. First of all, you may indeed face persecution. In fact, along the way, you most definitely will. Because your life indicts. Your life exposes sinfulness. Many people, perhaps even most, will look at your life and not like it. In fact, even hate it because it stands in such stark contrast to the choices that they make. On the other hand, you will encounter people in whom God's Spirit is working. And they are broken. They are aware of their limitations. They are frustrated by their sin. They're angry with their inability to change, and they want some hope. Often these people will have to come to the very end of themselves, losing jobs, losing money, poor health, other kinds of tragedies, to realize that they have no real resources left. And when God's Spirit causes you to intersect with their lives, you may indeed have the exact answers that they're looking for. As I sat and talked with my wife to our friend in our neighborhood yesterday, it's clear that she is completely racked by fear. She fears tomorrow. She fears what next year holds. And she fears what eternity holds. She realizes she has no ability in her own strength to change. And God in his grace is causing our paths to intersect so that we can tell her. That's not a bad thing for you to realize. And yet there is hope. So this story is about sin. This story is about just wrath upon sin. But it's also a story of God's grace. And though perhaps it can be imperceptible at times, yet it is here. And though sometimes we feel like we are walking around in a land, among a people, on a planet that by and large is seeking to live autonomously, that is spiraling down into degeneration, yet there is hope. And that is why we send money to Dubai. That is why we send money and send people to Africa. And that is why we here should be going out into the mass of humanity that seems so hopeless and bringing them truth, not shirking our responsibility to speak about sin, but speaking of it honestly, directly, clearly, deliberately, and kindly. And then pointing people to the one who will carry them through the flood of God's wrath. Who in fact has already taken the judgment upon himself so they need not fear it and will bring them to the end. Some of you along the way have read Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim eventually becomes Christian and comes to the edge of the river that is at the base of the celestial city. And at the edge of the base of the celestial city is this great river, as I just mentioned, and it's, 
it's needful to be crossed if one is to enter into the celestial city. And John Bunyan, whenever he wrote this tale of Christian purposefully, is clarifying through this river that one must pass through death if one is going to enter into the eternal state. In this story, I want to read a bit to you. We find the way that Christian, who is trusting Jesus, views death. And I want you to understand that death itself is a sort of final remnant of God's wrath. And and even though we are not under condemnation, we still have to deal with some of the effects of God's curse upon the earth. So this man Christian and his friend Hopeful come to the river. They get into the water. Christian begins to sink immediately and crying out to his good friend Hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. Selah. Then said the other Hopeful, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is good. Then said Christian, Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. With that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. Also here, in a great measure, lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of all those sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of his pilgrimage. That all the words that he spoke still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and heart fears that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance at the gate. But Hopeful answers him, My brother, you have quite forgot the text where it is said of the wicked. There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not troubled as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. And then the verse that we read a bit ago from Isaiah 43, Christian remembers, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. Then they both took courage, and the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they were gone over. Christian therefore presently found ground to stand upon, and so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow, and they got over and entered the city. There is coming a day when all of us will face the finality of these lives. We will go through the floodwaters of death. But we need not fear, for Jesus has already borne our condemnation and will carry us through. But while the time remains, while we look forward to that finality, there are others who can yet be rescued. And Jesus is the one who will bear their condemnation if they will but trust him as well. There's a hymn that we sing here from time to time. Jesus, Savior, pilot me. Here are the lyrics. Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea. Unknown waves before me roll, hiding rock and treacherous shoal. Chart and compass come from thee, Jesus, Savior, pilot me. As a mother stills her child, you can hush the ocean's wild, boisterous waves, obey thy will. When you say to them, be still, wondrous sovereign of the sea, Jesus, Savior, pilot me. And like pilgrim Christian, when at last I near the shore and the fearful breakers roar, grant me long and peaceful rest, then while leaning on your chest, may I hear you say to me, Fear not, I'll pilot thee. As we look at this text, we see who we were. We see the reality of our sin. We see that left to ourselves, we would have spiraled into destruction. And yet God in his great mercy decided to rescue us by his son. And yet there is sin that remains. It's rampant. It's nasty and ugly and unrelenting. 
left to themselves, mankind will continue on this path. And they face the prospect of God's wrath. And God must bring his wrath down upon sinful humanity or he will cease to be just. But God has left us here. And he's given us the responsibility of inviting others to the one who will take the sinful out of the floodwaters of God's wrath, lost in the darkness of their sin, and bring them to the other side. And so we've learned about sin. We've learned about just wrath. And we've learned about surprising mercy. And I hope that you see that as you read into this text. Israel needed this. They needed to understand why they were like they were, why their neighbors were like they were. Israel needed to understand why God had to punish sin and what their prospect would be if they failed to repent. And yet Moses reminds them that the God of mercy who had taken them out of Egypt and taken them through the floodwaters of the Red Sea and shown them mercy at Sinai and countless other times was the God who delights to show covenant grace to his people. And so today, despite sinfulness and despite justifiable wrath, we rest in grace that God is kind and good. And then we take that message, speaking honestly about sin, boldly about man's condition, and genuinely about what their prospect is apart from grace. And then we highlight God's grace against the backdrop of his wrath. And we say, though God must punish sin and you are a sinner, there is mercy to be found in the one who will carry you through God's judgment. This text was incredibly relevant in Moses' day. And just as relevant today. May God teach us by his spirit the truths of his word.